Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert, the Managing Editor of P&L. Um, before we get to this week's guest, we'll, as usual, we'll go through the week that was. Um, in a way, this actually is not really the week that was. This is the week that was in 2015. Because um, <clears throat> late last week, sorry, probably two weeks ago, as we're listening to this, um, CFH Clearing lost an appeal to have their case against um, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, um, heard again regarding events around Swiss National Bank's depegging in January 2015. Um, I wrote this piece up and wrote a, a fairly scathing commentary, which looked at most people involved in the episode, and frankly, it was a pretty sorry episode all round. Um, but one thing that did come out of it was got a lot of feedback. It's clearly something that still gets everybody's you know engine running because um a lot of people got in touch around this issue of repapering trades now the issue in this case was um b of a repapered the trades to 70.75 whereas ebs on the day said that the official low was 0.85 and apparently most other banks did repaper to 0.85 now we all know that frankly you know the, the market traded down to point. 0.125, I think it was. And it certainly traded the 0.7. It certainly traded the 0.5. And uh, as the documents will attest, the call documents will attest, um, 27 million euros went through at 0.14 and 0.20 um, collectively. So there is an issue over this low. But what really struck me was how people were saying, well, yeah, okay, it's fine. We repaper the trades. Others, and I have seen myself included, Look at it and go, well, you know, how have we got to the stage where we're protecting people against their own operational weakness? You know, the people involved in this thing have been long gone from their institutions in many cases. But I do think we need to ask the question now, are we actually doing the right thing by just bland, you know, blindly repapering trades according to what a platform picks as, particularly on this occasion, um, a titular blow because according to the rules i'm sure the volume and number of trades that went through there was plenty went through way below 0.85 so the traded low was certainly a lot lower than the official low not the first time we've had that um but should we really be protecting people i mean yes the smb stuffed it up spectacularly so they didn't expect anything you know like what happened but if you look at it rational thinking We'll say, why would you be selling at 0.2 or at 0.4 or even 0.7? It's not rational. You know, it basically says the euro is worth nothing. Switzerland has taken over the euro. Now, in some ways, that will be a good thing, probably. But the fact is, it's not going to happen. So, you know, rationality tells you that, you know, if the euro is worth this, fine, but it's not. So why are you selling it? The algos that were selling it largely didn't have the right risk checks in place. Um, but whose fault is that? You know, this is the fault of the people that should, in my opinion, um, make sure that these checks are in place. There should be a price limit used. It should be, it should be mandatory for anyone trying to use an algo. Why would you want to hit a price at 0.14? They may well have turned around and say, well, we put the order in when it was at 0.6. Fine. Make your price limit 0.55 or 0.5. Don't just blindly hit it because you know, we can see what happens. We saw in the flash crash in equity markets what can happen. So I'm trying to figure out 
why we can't have these price limits in place on the algos. You know, if a human did it, the human would probably know better and would probably adjust and, and pause. The algo can't think for itself and be inventive yet, I should probably add. So, you know, put that check in place. I mean, in 2016, I wrote about, um, I reviewed a paper from Eco Financial Technologies, Ian Green, the former head of um, EFIC um, at Credit Suisse, wrote it. And it was talking about the last mile check, you know, where you actually go through that last check. It takes maybe two milliseconds to do it. Well, take those two milliseconds and do it because otherwise we get the mayhem we had. Now, a few people got in touch and said, yeah, but what about Brexit? Because, you know, had you had a price limit in place that I'm suggesting on Brexit night, well, obviously most clients couldn't have traded because it fell 20 odd big figures. Well, yes, it did. But we knew the Brexit vote was coming and we knew the risks were higher. So therefore, you just change the price limit threshold, maybe to 20, 25 big figures. You know, we've all got all this predictive technology as to how far things will go in an event. If we notice an event coming, you can put the price limits on it. If we don't know there's an event coming, well, guess what? The price limits can stay in place and it would probably, I'm, I'm really struggling to think apart from Brexit um, and when Sterling fell out of the ERM in 1992, more on that in a short while, by the way, um, then I'm trying to really struggle to think of an event where a, a 10 big figure move was actually um, fundamental and happened so quickly that people couldn't get out of it. So I think we do need to look at these things. We need to look at these thresholds. Um, and the problem needs to be solved before we get more issues around repapering. You know, if we have these price limits, then people will have to deliberately overrule them. And if you, you know, do that, fine. That's your, that's your, uh, well, I was going to say your funeral has been unfortunate given the summer I've had, but yeah, it's your funeral. You deserve everything you get then. Why should we help these people with inadequate risk checks. So I do think it's something that maybe, you know, could be discussed on more forums, um, including, you know, Global Foreign Exchange Committee, Regional Foreign Exchange Committees. And indeed, I might even try and get something going for Forex Network Chicago, which is coming up at the end of September. Um, last week on the podcast, I mentioned briefly that um, a member of the infamous cartel, Rohan Ramchandani, had won his um, unfair dismissal case against City. Um, well, there's another episode in that saga unveiling with um, Ramchandani and Richard Usser, um, his fellow um, accused and also fellow acquitted, I should add, by a New York jury, um, arguing in a pretrial that the DOJ documents should be available because the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in the US is continuing with the 2017 um, uh, sanction. Now, I think in 2017, if I remember rightly, they fined them $5 million and effectively ban them. But earlier this year, they sort of changed the legal action and they're actually going after the, uh, the two members of the cartel. I guess Chris Ashton is not in this because he had a plea bargain as part of his given evidence in the, um, in the, in the cartel trial for the prosecution, but um, they're going uh, anti Sherman act, which is a different angle. What is also interesting though, they're also saying that the conduct was not in line with generally accepted uh, standards of prudent op operation. That will be the interesting one because according to the jury, um, everyone was doing it was a valid defense. So maybe they're banging their head against the brick wall here, hoping to get a different result this time. The Sherman Act may be a different angle. What it does mean is that 
you know, for, for those two individuals, it's going to be another, you know, period of uncertainty and facing, you know, lawsuits and, you know, it's a saga that goes on. I think the trial is expected to begin, you know, early, mid next year. So it's not even going to be a quick transformation either. The US legal system continues to confound. Um, but there we go. Um, finally, um, this, I think this is a first for the podcast, actually. I'm actually going to point you in the direction of a different podcast. So um, I'm indebted to a friend who pointed out to me that um, BBC Radio 4 um, on Friday ran a program called The Reunion. And it's about Black Wednesday. And I think The Reunion brings people together. And um, they're talking Black Wednesday, the day, the aforementioned day when Sterling dropped out of the RM. Um, I was trading cable and Sterling Mark for a chunk of that. I was trading cable for the whole day and Sterling Mark for a chunk of the day um, in cover. And it was truly a remarkable day. It was just still probably the most memorable day in my trading career. Um, but they've actually got um, five protagonists involved in the day um, to chat through their experiences. And there's some really, really good insights in there. However, this being in the thick of it and this being me, I really, really enjoyed just a few little snippets in there around, you know, the use of the word mangled to describe the Bank of England on that day. You don't get that sort of insight anywhere else but the foreign exchange market. Um, and I also really enjoyed, because um, those of you with long enough memories will remember Mark Clark um, had an unfortunate interview with Channel 4 News. Um, that was well, He had an unfortunate 30 seconds with Channel 4 News um, who were in the trading room that day, uh, which led to the Daily Mail um, included them in a list on a voting panel for the most unpopular person in Britain. And I love that he remembers as in fact I do, because the word did go around by the broken network as these things always do, how most of his dealing colleagues and most of his friends in the market were all ringing in to vote for him as the most unpopular man in Britain. There, ladies and gentlemen, is the, the nature and the ethos of the foreign exchange market and long may it continue. So um, if you go to the BBC sounds app, you can find the program on there. I'm probably sure it'd be available online for those of you who can't access BBC. It is actually well worth a listen. It's a really interesting insight into a good day, but there's some interesting giggles on the day. And if anyone can tell me who it is that shouts out when interest rates went up to 15%, does anyone want to buy a house from a dealing room? Then you, I will be forever in your debt. Um, we're going to be back after the break to talk um, South African Rand and what's been happening there. So um, we'll be back in a second. Did you know that if you sign up before September 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. Inevitably on this podcast, focus has been on the major markets. Um, but you know, COVID-19 is a global phenomenon. So um, you know, emerging markets often offer opportunities galore. So I thought it'd be great to get a feel of what conditions have been like in you know, one of the major emerging markets out there. And we can probably even debate whether it should be called an emerging market. So I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Keenan, who's head of currency strategy at ABSA in Joburg, um, to talk about conditions you know, in the RAND and maybe hopefully have a little peek into the future. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Um, 
could you give us a feel then as you know of how local markets there have evolved as the crisis has, has unfolded? Good day, Colin, and thanks very much for for having me today. Um, yes, uh, the markets became uh, you know very tumultuous um, at the end of end of March um, as the onset of the pandemic kicked in. And um, I think what was happening globally, is, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, there was this sort of uh, scampering for, for dollar liquidity um, and people um, were getting out of any kind of risky positions. Um, now, because the RAND has got no exchange control limitations on foreign investors, time and time again, when, when risk aversion is high, people tend to sell the RAND quite aggressively because they can get their money out of the country quickly uh, and painlessly. There's no withholding taxes or withholding periods. And we saw the RAND weakening sharply as the crisis sort of got underway and as there was this rush for dollars towards the end of the first quarter. In addition to that, we also had South Africa getting downgraded by, by Moody's to sub-investment grade. And that basically triggered um, an ejection uh, of South African bonds from the World Government Bond Index. In other words, the, the investors that tracked that index were forced sellers of South African bonds um, after March. And, and that, of course, also um, resulted in a huge outflow of capital um, from the country. So, so there were two forces at play. One was more idiosyncratic, the downgrade, but the other one was very much a global theme. People were looking for dollars and the RAND was a great place to to get hold of that um, that dollar liquidity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, something just popped in my head when you were talking there. I'm thinking there was probably a heck of a lot of carry traders as well that traditionally have always had a lot of fun in the RAND. <laughs> so, well, well, exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the carry trade obviously was um, being unwound because for a very long time, the South African Reserve Bank had kept interest rates relatively high, um, you know, but um, at the beginning of this year, they started to to, to cut interest rates also quite a, quite aggressively, and uh, that would have unwound some of that carry trade appeal very much definitely as well. Mm. Because I mean, it does strike me that you know there are these market moves have fairly been fundamental have been fairly fundamental. You know, obviously we talk a lot about risk on risk off, but you know there was actually some fundamental drivers behind this, and you mentioned there the interest rate cuts that took place. Mm. Yeah, you know, both in South Africa and elsewhere. Quite right. I think that's been a very strong theme this year. We, we've done some analysis comparing sort of the emerging market currencies that have done well and, and that have done less well this year. And there seems to be a very common theme. Countries like South Africa, Brazil, uh, Russia, um, Turkey, all of those countries where interest rates have been cut very aggressively, um, those are the currencies that have tended to underperform the ones where the interest rate cuts have been more modest. Um, so, you know, again, it comes back to your original point about the erosion of the carry trade. Yes, um, sort of G, G3 rates have been low and, and are negative in some instances. But, um, you know, investors probably in this risk-off environment want as much kind of insurance or risk premium and when when uh, when emerging markets actually cut some of that that risk premium out um, then then the currencies need to adjust accordingly it strikes me I mean I, I'm not sure the exact numbers I'm you, know, you could probably correct me but I, I seem to recall the round entered the year sometime around 14 there's been up to sort of above 19 and 
I think we're currently around 17.30, aren't we? Um, but, I mean, that's, that's an interesting place for anyone trying to hedge. You know, corporates trying to hedge. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. You know, it, it, it makes life extremely difficult. Um, and, you know, you, you know, again, just to, to sort of belabor the point about those interest rate differentials, if you've got a currency that's weakening 20, 30%, um, even, the, the, even the fact that South Africa has got relatively high interest rates at sort of 4 and 5% at the beginning of, of, of the year, it certainly doesn't compensate you um, for for the exchange rate losses. So yeah. it makes it very difficult for corporates to um, sort of to act. Um, we we were trying to um, sort of caution them against panicking, um, but it's, it's easier said than done. We sit on the sidelines; they've got to run businesses. But we have seen it time and time again. We had a crisis in in, in sort of 2000 and. Um, in 2015, early 2016, again, the rain blew out in a very short space of time. Um, we typically try and advise clients if they came to hold off and wait for markets to settle down. But, you know, again, it's easier said than done. Volatility is high, um, and they worry that perhaps the currency will move even further away from them. So they normally inadvertently actually fuel, um, you know, the panic and the volatility. Mm. Yeah, it's it's one of those sort of strange anomalies of, of life, isn't it? That you know, these are these sort of markets present so many great opportunities for entering a hedge at a really good level, but actually it's it's about having that patience and, as you say, confidence and, and courage in some ways to um, to you know, to put the numbers at risk for your own business. Mm. Your 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 point there on you know like the the interest rate cutting nations you mentioned in Turkey and and Brazil and so on. Do you do you feel that there's actually some different correlations emerging? Um, you know, whereas the RAND, you know, historically may have had, you maybe you looked elsewhere for your lead, you know, your leads in terms of you know market information and market predictions. Do you feel there's other new correlations emerging in the COVID crisis that the RAND's part of? Yeah. So um, you know what we did notice that uh, <clears throat> when. Um, especially in response to the COVID crisis with all the stimulus that was coming through from the ECB, the Fed, um, out of China, et cetera, that commodity prices started to, to get a bit of a, a boost, as, uh, you know, because it wasn't only the central banks that were cutting, we were also seeing these fiscal stimulus announcements. And that, you know, collectively was, was, was spurring sort of commodity bulls. Um, and, and the RAND being a, a commodity-based currency was, was benefiting quite, quite nicely from that together with the likes of the Chilean peso, also a big exporter of copper. Um, so those were actually doing quite well in recovering quite nicely. Um, gold soaring on the back of um, sort of safe haven buying and inflationary fears. Yeah. All of that was playing nicely into the RAND's hands. But interesting, the correlation um, after picking up quite nicely with commodities and being very high, I would say, uh, sort of April, um, May, and, and June, it actually started to break down again because it seems like the RAND is now once again falling victim to sort of EM contagion fears uh, that are stemming largely from, from Turkey. So um, these mm. correlations are very dynamic and they, you know, well, it, give, it gives us uh, something to, to focus on on a day-to-day basis because they, they, they never stagnant. They are always changing. Yeah. And I must confess, I don't think, I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually trade emerging markets in my time. Um, I was more, say, in the majors. But I have to say, um, 
linking Turkey and South Africa is not something that I would immediately do. <laughs> well, I think I think what what often happens, and and, and it comes again back to um, what happened in in, in March, um, because there's no exchange controls for foreign investors in South Africa. Um, you know, if if you are if you have a position in Turkey or Brazil where maybe it's a little bit more difficult as a foreigner to get your money out, um, you, what, what, what emerging market investors tend to do then is actually go and hedge that position by buying dollar rand because, um, you know, that the, the, the sort of the sympathy depreciation that comes through from the rand will offset some of the losses that that investor is, is is incurring by having a a, a Turkish or a Brazilian uh, position, so it, it's used as a hedge uh, because of its liquidity and because of its uh, the, the lack of um, exchange control for foreigners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking ahead, then, Mike, if we can sort of switch to how you sort of see the future, um, what would be your best? estimate now around you know what issues should your clients be looking at or you're advising your clients to look at and you know what sort of feel do you have for for how markets going to go you know particularly around the rand in the next in the next few months yeah so we're quite constructive on the rand for a few reasons most of them are internationally driven actually so so we do think that commodity prices are going to do well as the stimulus sort of gets put to work in in the economies um, commodities are coming off a very low base as well, so we think they should should sort of do well um, as a sort of uh, a reflationary trade kicks in. Um, we've also noticed that that the dollar in in general is coming under increasing pressure, uh, yeah. and probably will continue into into the elections and and so long as there's these sort of geopolitical tensions between and trade tensions between the US and, and China. So we think the dollar remains on the back foot uh, in general. The rand will benefit from a weaker dollar environment. We think it will benefit also from a firmer commodity price environment. Um, I, I think the other big thing to bear in mind is that South Africa, although it doesn't have exchange controls for foreign investors, it's very much got exchange controls still for local investors. Local investors can only take um, about 30% of their money offshore. And like you said a, a little bit earlier, the rand was at 14 to the dollar at the beginning of this year. And if a lot of those investors actually were already at those thresholds at the beginning of the year, when the RAND weakened up to, to 1930, um, those investors would have been, would, would have fallen in breach of those um, external limits, which means they are forced to bring some of that money back. And they have got a bit of a window period. They've got um, sort of 12 months with which to recalibrate their offshore exposure. And, and that's why we found there's been three sort of big blowouts in the RAND in the past decade, uh, past two decades, when we've weakened by sort of more than three standard deviations from sort of the, from trend. And it's taken approximately between um, eight to, to sort of 12 months for the RAND to come back um, to that sort of, uh, sort of long-term trend. And I think that's in largely, uh, in large part, Due to these these um, regulations for local investors, so we we think those that external environment will be supportive. And the closer we we get to things like vaccines and and any kind of normality post sort of the crisis, um, but also we have got these sort of domestic shock absorbers which which should prevent the rand from weakening. So we think 
dollar rand ends the year closer to 1575. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, we've got down to 1630 fairly recently, but we think there's um, a little bit more to go. Um, either towards the end of this year or the first quarter of next year is probably when we'll, we'll get back to that kind of fair value in our opinion. And do you think that's a consensus view? It's actually very off consensus. Uh, we are that's uh, what we like in this podcast. <laughs> yes, we we are by we are actually according to the Bloomberg consensus the most constructive um, sell side house in the market, which has actually been quite uncharacteristic for APSA. We um, in recent years have been on the other extreme. We've been the most bearish house in the market, um, but we think now all the risk is priced into the currency, and now we will see. Um, you know, the recovery coming through and, and extending to 15 and a half odd, 1575. And I think that's also, Colin, something we, we've also purported for a long time, and that is that the RAND is, because it's a commodity-based currency, it often operates in long-term cycles. And I think we have experienced now quite a long uh, period of, of depreciation, and now the cycle is turning, and it probably will turn uh, along with any turn in the commodity cycle. So if our call is right on the commodity side of things, I really do think the land can recover. Yeah, yeah. Well, say so regular listeners to this podcast will know we love somebody with it. We love somebody who's willing to make a prediction. I have a long and proud history of being wrong on just about everyone I've predicted. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Mike, thank you very much for your time today. It's a fascinating insight into a market that we all pay attention to, but don't, if I think, if you know what I mean. it's Everyone's aware of the RAND, but I think we kind of don't look at some of these nuances around what happens there. So it's been fascinating to get that insight. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Colin. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and also to our listeners, thank you very much again for listening. Um, we actually will not be back next week because I'm actually freeing me up from my chains for one week, so I'm having a holiday. So we'll be back in two weeks for our next podcast. Um, So have a good two weeks and um, we'll be back then. Thanks for listening.